All right, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So some of you are in from out of town. I know I have family in, and uh, some of you have been traveling and have been in and out. And so uh, we've been dealing with this new topic of the kingdom of God, and it is comprehensive. It is a, it's a broad uh, topic to be addressing. But today, just I thought for fun, we would kind of retrace some of our steps because we've been pretty heavy in the content. And so if you haven't been here or if you're visiting, hopefully I can give you just a little bit of a snapshot of kind of what we've been looking at. And uh, I hope you had a good Christmas, that you got to eat some yummy food. And uh, even if you didn't have lots of presents to open, even if you didn't have lots of yummy food, um, I hope that your thoughts went to the Lord sometime during this holiday season, that you thought about the Lord your God. Maybe you said a prayer to Him. So that is the, the thing that we celebrated yesterday and that we continue to celebrate week after week. So we are about to start in New Testament passages about the kingdom of God. But we have been smelling the roses through the Old Testament uh, about the topic of this kingdom that God brings to us. I'm sorry, it feels a little formal that I'm up here, but I'm so comfortable with you guys that I don't want to take the effort to move this anywhere. And uh, my jacket is not because I want to dress formally, but because I'm cold and I need the warmth. But this kingdom that Jesus talks about and announces availability through his own person, uh, there's certain crucial information that we need to have about this kingdom as disciples. Uh, in Matthew, uh, he calls this kingdom the kingdom of heaven. And one of those crucial pieces of information that we need is this kingdom of God, it is a hidden kingdom. And it currently exists alongside a whole lot of other kingdoms. And all of these kingdoms are clamoring for our attention. Of course, the great tragedy of human history is that we give our hearts, our sweat, our tears, our blood, and our very lives to kingdoms that are not worthy of us. We are constantly distracted by these little kingdoms. And in a world of fierce competition, in a world of distraction and noise, uh, the kingdom of God, it comes to us with a whole lot of humility. And if you're not paying attention, you can miss it completely. Really, the kingdom of God is the divine conspiracy. So I said that the story of the kingdom, it's a story that revolves around a special called-out people who live under the rule of God. Simply put, it's God reigning over us. And under this rule, they discover justice, healing, redemption, purpose, salvation. So there are several premises that I put forward for our consideration in this series that I've kind of been building on as we have looked at the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. First, I said that the first premise is that this kingdom, it is really the meta-narrative that runs throughout the entire Bible. 
Genesis to Revelation. It is kind of that thread that I see or the story behind all stories. And so uh, the seeds of the kingdom, we find them already even before Genesis 12 with Abraham who, search, who went out in search for a city whose builder and maker is God all the way to the close of the Bible in John's apocalyptic work of Revelation where we, he talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens from God. So our second kind of premise that we had is that the Gospels don't begin in the Gospels. And for that matter, the Gospels, they don't end in the Gospels. But the Gospels, Jesus is really concerned with announcing and letting people know about this kingdom of God and its availability. Uh, so the implications of the Bible, they are bigger than the Bible. And really the implications of what Jesus is announcing in the kingdom of God, uh, the audacity of this claim is that it is for all human history, for all time, in every location. That uh, that is the width and the breadth of what this kingdom of God entails in, in and encompasses. So really all of existence as we know it. So the second premise there, and then the third is followed by a third that I've made. And this is where it gets down, where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us. Everyone as an individual has to decide, what are you going to do about this kingdom? What are you going to do about this announcement that Jesus made? And maybe you know that clearly, maybe you don't know that clearly. But who is going to be Lord of your life and if you don't know this, and I think we've lived, been around and we've eaten enough salt to know, uh, you're going to be ruled by something. And what a tyranny it is to be ruled by self or the king, other little kingdoms of this world when what is available to us is God's rule in our lives. So those are the three kind of premise that I've been building off of. Who is going to be Lord of your life? And this was the announcement of Jesus himself in Mark 1.15. He says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. Time is fulfilled, meaning history has been building up to this one point. And repent really just means think it out again. Whatever your life strategy is, how are, you, how are you trying to, I got this 401k, I've got these dividend producing stocks, I've got these life plans, I'm going to get this degree, I'm going to be married to this person, we're going to live in this place. Uh, all of those life decision plans that you're making, repent means think, think about that again. Think about that again in light of the availability of what God is now offering us in his kingdom. So really, you know, the, a lot of, I think, the way this world lives is like it's kind of one giant Hunger Games episode, although not quite that intense. Uh, well, everyone is kind of in competition with everyone else, and everyone in their own way is fighting for limited resources, clamoring for attention, clamoring for the, the influential kind of things where we can say, hey, I've got the answers. And uh, if this physical world is all there is, 
you can, if this, if this is a closed system and creation has no meaning, if there's no God behind it all, if this world, this physical world is all there is, you can almost justify an attitude of do unto others before they can do unto me. Or, well, they should have known better before they got in my way. Because if I have to take care of me and my own, I will. And, and that means if you need to get out of my way. And uh, there's always been that kind of thinking. And as long as the, as the Lord has revealed himself all the way back to Abraham and others, there have always been people who have resisted that kind of thinking as well, who have held fear of the Lord, uh, who have said, we will trust you instead of, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. So we've spent nine weeks mining these stories of the Old Testaments, uh, uh, stories that chronicle humanity's search for this kingdom of God. And we've covered a lot of ground, so I thought we'd take some time to summarize some of these things this morning. Again, this is the jet flying over 30,000 feet kind of version of some of these things we've looked at at maybe the 10,000-foot level. So the kingdom of God really begins in earnest with this story of Abram, Abraham, where the Lord says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So we see these seeds in the Abraham story kind of continue to develop throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the seeds of the kingdom in Torah is a land flowing with milk and honey, which God has promised us, where we will one day become a mighty nation, where God will defend us from all of our foes, and he will make us great, where we will live in unimagined peace and plenty, all we have to do is keep God's commands, his hesed love, his covenant loyalty. And from us will come a divinely sent leader whom all the nations will serve, found in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. <coughs> so that is this announcement of the availability of God's kingdom, even as it's, it's being sussed out and beginning to be understood so some of the seeds there. And then we trace that through the conquest in the time of the judges into the early monarchy, where a promised land is conquered. Now Israel has a land of their own. Even so, people are beginning to notice, hey, there's a lot of things happening in this land that are clearly not the will of God and not the desire of God, and those which the prophets will deal with in earnest later on. But they kind of see a cycle being set up in Israel. When they're faithful, they are safe, they're at peace, they thrive, the Lord blesses them. And when sinfulness comes, when uh, idolatry comes, unfaithfulness comes, it leads to oppression. And so uh, the people are, they wander away from the Lord, they're inevitably oppressed, they cry out for the Lord, the Lord responds in mercy to send someone who has a special anointing of his spirit, 
a kind of hero or a judge to deal with the situation of the moment. And then as things shifted and changed, they began to cry out and say, we want a king of our own, and uh, we want someone to rule over us. And so Samuel anoints Saul. Saul is unfaithful after a while, and then there's a charismatic leader raised up in King David. So they reject the direct rule of God for monarchy. Having a human king doesn't fix all their problems, but brings a whole new set of problems. And David, it seems, is the last leader chosen by a special outpouring of the charismatic spirit of the Lord. Now, there's other kings who did good things, but to use that phrase like the spirit of the Lord was upon him or the spirit came on him in power, which it does throughout Judges, talks about the spirit coming that way. It talks about that early in uh, Saul's life, and then it talks about that in David's career. In fact, when he's lamenting over his sin, uh, in Psalm 51, I think it is, where he says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation uh, when he's th- that created me a clean heart, Lord. Samuel famously says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so this story of the kingdom of God developing, there's a beginning to be more of a distance from this direct rule of God over a people. So we look at the kingdom in Torah, the kingdom in the cycle of judges, conquest, early monarchy, and then really the prophets begin to play a big role in the development of our understanding of the kingdom of God. And uh, they come and they address a situation of a kingdom under judgment. So do you remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha? These are prophets who come in power. Elijah on uh, Mount Carmel, Elijah with the prophets of Baal, uh, some of those stories where we see that they're in dramatic power, uh, the power of the Lord is displayed in dramatic fashion to call these people back to faithfulness and repentance. Uh, But that, as we see time as it marches on, uh, it's not just the external pressures of paganism that begin to crumble apart these concepts of the kingdom and this rule of God. Uh, But over time, the, the, the pressures begin to build up from internal threats that are there. Uh, And so from within the kingdom itself, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, you have certain false prophecies that begin to be purported and put forth for the people. The Israelite state is the totality of God's kingdom. Uh, Sometimes we try to do that, saying the kingdom of God is the church. The kingdom, the church at its best may be in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God encompasses something so much broader. It is the entire rule and reign of God himself over all creation. Uh, So the the, the prophets were saying, you know, this is, this is it. We are, this is the, what we've been all been waiting for. We're God's chosen people because we have the heredity or the lineage that matters. We give God ritual sacrifices. And uh, you see the prophets railing against this religion as a financial transaction. We have the right doctrine. Uh, They were emphasizing right forms 
oh, and didn't seem to care as much about having the right heart or the heart that the right acts of worship would come from. <coughs> and then the king is God's chosen son. So at that, as that degrades, that kind of becomes whatever the king says is, well, that must be the will of God and what God wants. So therefore, God will eternally defend the state, and we can do no wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me get a swig of coffee here. And so the Lord, he sends prophets to uh, deal with this kind of thinking. And uh, so Amos is the first one who really kind of goes and just hammers it as a different kind of a prophet. In fact, he says, I'm no prophet at all. He's a He's a sheep herder from Timbuktu of Judah coming to Israel, and he sees a great nation in Israel that is nevertheless sick and incapable of curing what's wrong with it, and it doesn't even see how sick it is. So Amos's critique, he goes and he finds they're confident in the strength of their military. They're comfortable in wealth and prosperity. They're complacent in their religion and their religious devotion. The shrines were very busy, and yet somehow it was crooked. They're a society with injustice, greed, immorality, pleasure-loving ease, and vanity. And you can't help but make correlations. But the kingdom message, or this kingdom message in a, a nutshell of what Amos is kind of getting at, the kingdom of Israel is not the kingdom of God. It can't be the kingdom of God nor inherit it because it has flouted the laws of God and violated the covenant of brotherhood. And then that famous verse from Amos, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. So in the prophets, we begin learning that the kingdom of God is a lot bigger than just the Jewish state. (coughs) And in the critique of the prophets, we learn something about the kingdom of God by all the mistakes that Israel made. In the kingdom of God, we learn that there is not sin and immorality. In the kingdom of God, worship doesn't just have the right forms, but will be done primarily with the right heart. The inhabitants of this kingdom will not be blind to God, to the true state of themselves, or to the needs of others. They will value people above things, above their own possessions. And in this kingdom, justice and righteousness will flow. And there is no distinction between those who have and those who do not have. So those are some of the lessons that these prophets teach us, but they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, prophet after prophet after prophet. They're sent to Israel, they're sent to Judah, and the people uh, refuse to repent. Uh, They refuse to live under this kind of reign or rule of God. And judgment was inevitable, and eventually the opportunity for repentance, it passed, and Uh, you get judgment taking place in the form of oppression of foreign nations. So Israel was wiped off, this great nation that couldn't see its own need and sickness, 
after Amos preached within 20 years, that nation ceased to exist. Little remnants became Samaritans later on. It was wiped off the face of the earth by the Assyrians. And then uh, the Babylonians, of course, they uh, took over Judah and destroyed them. But even while the destruction was happening, you have prophets that don't just preach doom and gloom, but they also have strange messages of hope, kingdom hope kind of infused in what they were talking about. And so this theological idea of a righteous remnant begins to take place in some of the prophets. So a prophecy from Hosea, for example, the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. And afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. And so that hope begins to take expression. The kingdom of God in Isaiah and Micah, Hosea even. Uh, in this kingdom, justice shall reign. Peace will be unbroken. Uh, the kingdom is the way that Israel will finally live up to its destiny to be a blessing to the entire world, where God's rule in this kingdom is through a Davidic prince imbued with God's own spirit. And by this Holy Spirit, this selected chosen individual will rule. And this ruler stands before us not as a fierce warrior, but as a little child. And he reigns over a people who are transformed by their obedience. And this kingdom is a kingdom that will endure forever. And so all of these seeds of thinking are being developed in, Israel, in the Israel of this day and through the time of the prophets. And they give us this picture of a very unusual messianic king. He's this messianic king who's going to come. He's from humble and unlikely origins. He's a sprout from a stump of a once mighty tree, and this, this tree stump is thought to be dead. And his power is not of the sword, but over the spirits of men and women. And his kingdom is one entered by peoples who have been humiliated, a small remnant who in suffering and tragedy have been purged of their sins and have learned obedience to the will of God. So then this message it develops further in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, his contribution would be, we are a people who are incapable of creating or maintaining the kingdom of God on our own. So how do we get in this kingdom? How do we, if we can't produce this kingdom ourselves, how do we do this? It has to be a miracle of the Lord, strictly speaking. Strictly speaking, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, the Lord says. And then further, this message is developed in the second half of Isaiah, where... Uh, the way that the Lord remembers our sin no more, the way that he forgets about our sin is through someone who takes the burden of that. It's kind of the message of uh, Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. And so that is, the, of course, the passages that deal with this idea of 
the suffering servant or a special servant of the Lord. He's on a world mission to bring light and liberty to all humanity. He's endowed with God's own spirit. Supported by God, he will be successful. But his progress is not one of conquest and glory, but of quiet labor and infinite patience. And in in spite of discouragement, he will not give up until his victory is won. He will proclaim the good news of God's redemption, interceding with God day and night for the victory of his purpose. His mission will bring suffering, but he will accept it. He will be beaten, tormented, spit upon, but he will endure patiently, awaiting God's vindication. That's all that second part of Isaiah has this message. Who he in this servant will become one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we have been healed and so generation after generation they hold this messianic hope they hold this hope of God's kingdom to come in truth um, And this hope, it lives in the lives of Jewish people. Now, this idea of a suffering servant, that never really caught on with Jews. Jews didn't want a suffering Messiah. Uh, But yet, the seeds of God's reign coming, his restoration and fixing what has been wrong, where his righteous rule will be over a purified remnant of people who have been purified by their obedience and by what they have suffered, can see that this is this message of the kingdom of God that is being moved forward as understanding grows over time. And uh, we have one last stop, one last stop to make coming up. Uh, Calvin, if you want to come up here, I'm about done, and you can lead our invitation song. So next week, uh, I think, Lord willing, Mike is going to bring our sermon to us, and I think he's going to be talking about hope, so you'll want to be here for that. He does a good job for us. And then, Lord willing, in a couple weeks from now, we're going to stop at our last Old Testament uh, survey, kind of, of the kingdom of God, because in the 14 generations from the exile until Christ came, there was one last interesting development, and it was that of the genre of apocalyptic literature. And so do you guys know what Jesus' most common self-designation was? What does he, how does he refer to himself most commonly as a son of man? The son of man came. And uh, those Son of Man passages are alive in this strange genre of apocalyptic literature. So uh, a couple weeks from now, I think we're going to be looking at Ezekiel and Daniel and the prophecies there specifically, uh, because there's so much we can mine. So a sneak peek from Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. And uh, this is the place that we need to figure out how to get there. And this is the place we need to figure out how to go, uh, not only as a church community, but also as individuals. How do we live under this special reign of God? It begins by trust. It begins by accepting the humility of the way God's kingdom comes to us. Maybe it's just an idea planted in your heart. I can be a better man. Uh, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, what can I do to serve you this day? Lord, help me. The kingdom comes in all those little, small, humble ways. And uh, the more we learn to trust it, uh, we orient our lives in directions that we begin to progressively step into it more and more. And we're always trying to just test our test our feet. So I think a lot of Christians, it just kind of feels like we're all buddied together and we're all saying, oh yeah, it's so good over there. The water's great and you should go dip your toes in. And we're all trying to psych each other up and instead of really just jumping in and letting go of all of those lifelines of this world that we think bring us so much comfort and security where we begin to become progressively a living sacrifice and our lives begin to become a blessing for the people around us. That's what this message of the kingdom entails. And that's what Jesus Christ is inviting us into in his own person. So we're going to uh, transition in the upcoming weeks and look at those things.